if you will, take out your Bibles, whatever form that is, whether it's analog or digital, um, follow along. And if you want to turn over there to Hebrews 1, uh, Lord willing, that's where we're going to spend our time today is in the book of Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> several weeks ago, uh, actually the first, first Sunday in February, I guess it was, um, I looked at some passages from the Old and New Testament um, from the Bible reading schedule that we've got, and we focused then on, uh, particularly on Galatians, uh, we, we were looking at Exodus and so forth and the Israelites and things and how that was a foreshadowing of what we have under the new covenant in Christ, and we focused on Galatians chapter 3. Um, in showing the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. I want to go back there and read a short scripture in Galatians 3 first because I want two things from this reading to be in our minds when we go to Hebrews. Uh, Paul was obviously, he was dealing with a different problem in Galatians in that there he was dealing with those who were teaching another gospel, trying to teach the Gentiles that, no, you got to keep the old, old covenant, the law of Moses, in order to be accepted in Christ. Um, and, and obviously we're dealing with something entirely different in the book of Hebrews itself. But in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The two things from the, the passage, first of all in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. That's an important relationship we need to think about, that we have in Christ a relationship that we have with God. And Again, connecting the New Testament with the Old, in verse 29, he says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, the promises that God had originally made to Abraham. Um, you're reaping those benefits, those blessings. Um, <clears throat> now, again, if you're following along in our reading schedule, the past two and a half weeks, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. And also, those that may have either gone to FC for the lectures or listened to any of the lectures online, um, their lessons were from the book of Hebrews. Um, in Hebrews, the Hebrew writers dealing with Jews that have obeyed the gospel, but now they're being tempted in part, a part, I believe, because of persecution. If you look at some of the things said in chapter 10, but they're tempted to give up on Christ to, if you will, lose their confidence, um, reject their inheritance, if you will, and go back to the old law. <clears throat> now, we're not really told why in that. Um, and I've, I've thought of some things, some things just popped into my head thinking about Hebrews now. And also in light of the problem in the first century of the Judaizing teachers. Are these ones that became discouraged because they were Judaizing teachers? Good question. We don't know. But for some reason, they're wanting to go back to the old law. Um, and so the Hebrew writer is bringing out things within the book um, to help them strengthen their confidence, if you will, in Christ and what they have in Christ. Um, I want to read again the, the scripture reading that, that Christopher read for us. So, you know, how does a Hebrew writer go about doing all this? These first three verses, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, he, he just starts out just, bam. I don't, I don't know what this verse 1 brings to your mind, or verses 1 and 2. You know, he, at many times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days spoken to us by his son. It reminds me somewhat of the parable of the vineyard owner in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because there it says that the vineyard owner, he sent his, first sent his servants, and the, vine, the, the ones keeping the vineyard rejected him, and then he finally sent his son. You know, he's making a similar statement here. In the past, he sent his message through the prophets, but now he has sent his son. His son is his spokesman. Uh, so the son of God, this, this isn't a prophet, this isn't another human being, this is the son of God. And, you know, it makes some powerful reminders here in verse 2, uh, through whom also he created the world. He's the creator. He is the, verse, beginning of verse 3, he is the exact representation, the imprint of God himself. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These are all things that it's talking about Christ here, that he's doing the Son of God. And then it says, after making purification for sins, now he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's right beside the Father. So this is, this is where the message is coming from. So, you know, pay attention. In, in some of this, we're just going to skim over, obviously. In verses 4 through 14, he reemphasizes that this is the Son of God, that he is greater uh, in power and position than the angels. And then he comes down to chapter 2. And I, in chapter 2, I want to start with verse 5. I'll read through the end of the chapter. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subje subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will tell, tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, a, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Now again, think about what he's already said in chapter 1 about who Jesus is. In chapter 2, he shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the passage that he quotes from Psalm 8. He says, this Jesus, the one that we read about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the one who is the Son of God, who created the world, for a little while took on a fleshly body and lived on this earth like we do. He's the one that created it. But he lowered himself like us and took on flesh and blood. And through that flesh and blood, he did it according to God's grace, verse 9, that through death he might taste death for everyone. He paid the price that we deserve for our sins. The Son of God. Um, verse 10, this is one of the things, this is one of the reasons I read Galatians earlier. Verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. If through Christ we are the sons of God, as we read in Galatians, that's what he's doing. He's bringing us as sons back to God bringing us to the glory that God intended for us to have when he created us. Also in this, in that he tasted death for everyone, in verse 14, he destroyed the power of the one, the, the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. He took away Satan's power. The Son of God took power away from Satan. Satan can no longer have control over those who remain faithful to God. And it also mentions in here, in, in chapter 1, again, he mentions that, that uh, Jesus is superior to the angels. In chapter 2, in verse 16, and I know there's some different translations, or I've been told there are different translations on this verse, but ESV, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, which is what the Hebrew or not Hebrew, what the what Paul said in Galatians, we're the offspring of Abraham if we have the faith that Abraham had and we've been baptized into Christ. So this writer's making the same connections back to us being fulfilled the fulfillment or these things being fulfilled um, in the New Testament under the New Covenant. But it also introduces the idea then in verse 17. Um, again, well, let me back up. I want to emphasize again. Beginning again, verse 14. Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Beginning of verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in chapter 2, first of all, he died in our place. But now he's at the right hand of God, serving as our high priest, making propitiation for us before God himself. He goes on then... In chapter 3, the first six verses, he shows that Christ is superior to Moses. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, holy brothers, who, you who share in the heavenly things, consider Jesus <clears throat> the apostle and high priest of our confession, there's a high priest again, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also, also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. <clears throat> now Moses was faithful in, in all God's house as a servant to testify <coughs> excuse me, to the things 
that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house because for his day and time, Moses was a part of God's house at that time. He was a faithful servant in what God designed and what God built. But Moses was a part of it and he was faithful in what he did. Christ is the son. He is the builder of the house. He is over the house. But yet he died that that house might be there. He died that we might be part of it. Um, but again, Jesus is superior to Moses. Again, the ones that the Jews looked to and put their faith and confidence in and were tempted to go back to the old law. And so he's reminding them, no, Moses was pointing to Christ. Christ is superior. He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the creator. So then in, um, I want to skip ahead, in chapter 4, let me double check my note. Yeah. In chapter 4, Beginning in verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, he goes into greater detail with regard to this priesthood and so forth. Um, and in the beginning of chapter 5, and then he introduces Melchizedek. I am not going to go touch Melchizedek today. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I'm not an expert on Melchizedek. Uh, it just says that the Old Testament prophecy about Christ was that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the main point in this, and, and we'll see this in then later in chapter 6, 13 through chapter 7, 28, <clears throat> he goes into the promises that were made to Abraham, Abraham's interactions with Melchizedek, and again the superiority of Christ. Um. One thing that it points out, and again, these two passages reference his priesthood and reference Melchizedek. In chapter 7, in verse 12, because now he's beginning to compare the Old Testament Levitical priesthood to that priesthood that Christ has now. In chapter 7, verse 12, he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. <clears throat> There's a change in the law. There's a change in the covenant. They are, the old covenant, the new covenant, the laws under both of those are different. And the priesthood's different because that's the only way Christ could be a high priest under the new, new covenant. Um. <clears throat> In chapter 8, then, this, this section, well, chapter 8, the first two verses. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, ministering in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And then verses 7, um, seven through 12. <clears throat> for, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds <clears throat> and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. <clears throat> the, the thing here, this, this is a quote from Jeremiah. 
prophecy from Jeremiah indicating that there would be a new covenant. And so they're tempted to go back to the old covenant, but there's something that this, the new covenant has that the old covenant didn't. Well, well the laws for one. But verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant would bring forgiveness of sins through Christ. Again, he tasted death. He paid the price for our sins so that we don't have to. So then in chapter 9, in verses 1 through 9, he gets into a description of the old, old uh, covenant with the, with the tabernacle. And with the service that the high priest did under the Old Covenant, how the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, um, when they would go in, I'm brain dead. Um, I'm trying to think of the right feast. The, the day, thank you, the Day of Atonement. That's when he would go in, and that was the only time that he would go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, they, would, they would serve in the outer part, the holy place, but not the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and so forth were. So then, in chapter 9, after describing the Old Testament and the, the tabernacle, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who, were, who are called may receive the pro promised eternal inheritance, <clears throat> since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ going into heaven itself with his own blood, if you will, the tabernacle not made with hands, purifies for the forgiveness of sins, which is something the blood of goats and bulls and things under the old covenant could not do. And as it describes in verse 14, uh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Christ was sinless. He was the Son of God. He's the creator. He is all of these things, and yet he's offering himself unblemished to God, purifying our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God under the new covenant. But verse 15 also says, that it also covers the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. It's the only sacrifice that can bring redemption and forgiveness. <clears throat> so in this, um, we see what Christ has done. Now, in... In chapter 10, in verses 5 through 10, it talks about Christ, and it says he came to do the will of God, God's will. So this is fulfillment of God's plan. <coughs> in chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, and this begins talking about under the old law, and every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. <coughs> 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us <coughs> for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. One sacrifice, one time. The only sacrifice that was capable of forgiving us of our sins. One. <clears throat> so, what the Hebrew writer's done in trying to convince <coughs> these not to give up, not to go back, is pointing out what God has done for us through Christ. <coughs> There's some other things that he uses in the book of Hebrews as well. First of all, he, he issues some warnings and uses some both positive and negative examples. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, here's a warning that he gives. In verses 1 through 4, <coughs> again, this is after chapter 1 introducing Christ and who he is. It says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, <coughs> how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. <clears throat> the warning, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't give up on the one sacrifice and the only one who can save us. Don't neglect that. Don't give up on it. And again, it was testified to us by God through all these means. And Carl's been pointing this out as we've been going through uh, our study in Acts. <clears throat> so, also in this passage, he, he uses some terms we, we, we may not think about how easy it is to <clears throat> uh, Verse 1, the end of verse 1, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect? What do you have to do to be lost? Nothing. Just don't do anything. You'll drift away, and you're ne neglecting what you should be doing and what God has created you for. <clears throat> so that's one of the warnings he gives. One of the negative examples that he gives, and this is flipping back in, <coughs> in Hebrews chapter 12, <coughs> he mentions Esau in verses 15 through 17. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The warning here, Esau was a descendant of Abraham. He was the oldest, the firstborn in that family. But he sold that birthright. He sold his inheritance, the blessing that he was to receive for one meal. How often do we sell out our spiritual life in Christ for something temporary in this world? So that's one of the negative examples. 
Now jumping back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, or 7 through 11, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And he says, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then also in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? <clears throat> was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief? Now, Bible reading. The historical part of what the Hebrew writer is talking about here is going to be coming up in the next two weeks in our Bible reading. It's going to go into the de detail of what happened. <clears throat> but skimming the surface, what's he saying happened? All right, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them. They were in the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. But what did they do? They whined. They complained. You know, it would have been better for us back in Egypt. We had food. When God had them send out the 12 spies, and this is coming up in our reading soon, they sent out the 12 spies. Ten of them came back and said, we can't take Canaan because there are giants there. We're not capable of going in and conquering the land because of the giants that are there. They didn't trust God. God, God destroyed the Egyptian army, bringing them out of Egypt. He sent the plagues, the death of the firstborn. And now they don't trust him to be able to go into Canaan, to capture it, to, to go into the promised land and to his promised rest. So that's what the warning is here. You know, don't harden your heart like they did. The Son of God came to earth, took on a fleshly body, died for you and me. Don't think that you can't do it. You can do it if you keep your faith, your confidence in Him. He created you, He gave you life, and He wants to give you a greater rest that he gets into and starts talking about in chapter 4. He says, these didn't enter the rest of the promised land. He said, but there's a greater rest to come. Um, <clears throat> so, so, sandwiched between the two script, uh, passages that we read in chapter 3 already, beginning in verse 12, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Trust Him. <clears throat> and again then, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, there's an eternal rest that's coming. But there's also a warning at the end of this. Uh, chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, 
<clears throat> and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, <clears throat> excuse me, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts, for if, <clears throat> excuse me, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest <clears throat> so that no one of you may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, don't give up. There's a better day coming. There's a rest coming, an eternal rest coming. But when you get there, you've got to give an account for yourself. That's a sobering thought. <clears throat> we have to stand before God one day for whether we live by faith here or not or whether we were like those who died in the wilderness and weren't allowed. <clears throat> you know, again, <clears throat> when they sent out the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that came back saying, God is with us, we can take the land. Joshua and Caleb were the only two from that generation that entered it. God's true and faithful. Another warning that he, the Hebrew writer gives, <clears throat> the end of Hebrews 5, uh, verses yeah, 11 through the end of the chapter, <clears throat> he's he, paraphrasing. He says, I've got a lot more to tell you, but you can't handle it because you become dull of hearing. By the time you should be teaching other people, you have need of someone to teach you. He said, you haven't used what I've given you to sharpen your discernment, to be able to discern between what's good and evil. <clears throat> and then in chapter 6, he goes on. Um, in the middle of chapter 6, he kind of issues this warning, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. If you've believed in God, and as he says, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then you fall away, You've given up on your creator. You've given up on the one that came to earth and died for you. What's going to bring you back? If that wasn't enough to hold you here, I <clears throat> I know last, last Lord's Day when we had our congregational meeting, I, I shared with you all, there are times in my life and still in my life, I struggle with things. But I will tell you this. What I found, that old poster I saw years ago, says when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot in it and hang on. And like in John 6, when Jesus' teaching drove many people away from him because the things he said was hard to hear, and he went to his apostles, his disciples, and said, are you going to leave too? What was Peter's response? Where else can we go? 
You're the only source of life. You're the only one that can give that rest. So, yeah, don't give up. So then, I know we're probably more familiar with the, the positive examples that are, that are given in Hebrews 11. All the people of faith that are mentioned in that chapter, <clears throat> again, I want to read some verse, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. <clears throat> faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's a lot of things that we don't see and we don't understand. But God created the world by his word, by speaking it into existence. In this chapter, and again, I'm not going to go into detail, but a, a couple of brief observations. In verses 4 through 7, it mentions Abel, Enoch, and Noah. <clears throat> now, what's unique about all three of those that would have been re relevant to the people the Hebrew writers trying to connect with? All three of those lived before any promises were made to Abraham. And yet it states that they were obedient because of their faith. They still trusted God, they still obeyed God, no promises to Abraham yet. A unique thing that it mentions, and I know that there's a lot of things that it says about Abraham, but in, <clears throat> in chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for a, forward to the city that has foundations, uh, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verses 13 through 16, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So God has prepared an eternal rest for us and He has made the means possible for us to get there. Because we could not get there if it weren't for Christ. If it weren't for the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ, there would be nothing to put hope in because we wouldn't have any way to overcome our sins and gain access and relationship to God again. It wouldn't be possible. <clears throat> he also speaks of Moses in uh, verses 20. I want to note 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mis mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. <clears throat> Moses was looking for something beyond what he had. 
He had everything when he was in Egypt. He was brought up in Pharaoh's house. He didn't leave Egypt till he was 40 years old. He gave it all up. It's interesting that he notes the end of verse 26, for he was looking to the reward. What reward? Well, maybe he's talking about verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Moses was seeking that homeland, that heavenly place that God had prepared, that was God's reward that he prepared for his people. And he was trusting in God. The latter part of this chapter, beginning in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, all of these, through, <clears throat> though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or (coughs) faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. (coughs) Again, these all died without receiving the promises. And look at what all they went through. Because they were looking beyond what's in this world. And it mentions mentions Christ. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Dying so that we might have life, that we might have hope. Why? 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 Again, chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Remember that sons of God again? That addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is, for, <clears throat> it is for discipline that you have, in, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, <clears throat> we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much... Uh, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For if they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. So why? He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Not brag about our own, that we might share His. And that it would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. So, how does this, how did this, did the Hebrew writer intend for this to motivate the people to whom he's writing? How should it motivate us? Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened, for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? <clears throat> For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. <clears throat> it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property <clears throat> since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and preserve their souls. Friends, are you one of the offspring of Abraham? Are you a son, a child of God? If you are, are you holding your confidence in God, in Christ, in your reward? If not, if, there's, if you have a need, if we can be of assistance to you, if we can pray for you, if we can help you, Hold your confidence. Let's think about these things as we stand and sing.